Welcome to Enacting the Kingdom, a podcast about liturgical worship. My name is Father Yuri Gladio, and I'm an Orthodox Christian priest with a lifelong desire to keep learning. I'm joined by my teacher and friend, Father Jeffrey Reddy. Father Jeffrey holds a doctorate in liturgical theology and is the co-director of the Orthodox School of Theology at the University of Toronto. I have to confess, I really don't know a lot about the historical development of the Litany of Peace, or why it's structured the way it is, or why it's even placed at the beginning of these services. And I think I function under a lot of assumptions about what some of the petitions are referencing. So I'm hoping in this episode, Father Jeffrey, we can clarify some of those questions and to uh, and to go over what we actually know historically and what we actually don't know historically. Uh, before we start and get right into it, are there any preliminary guardrails that you want to set up or, or anything you want to point out to start? Just that, you know, with all of, you know, liturgical history, you know, we're dealing with at times very little in the way of evidence. Um, you know, what, what it's important to understand is you know, where do we get such evidence? There are no liturgical, full liturgical books, you know, that we have access to from the early centuries. Uh, you know, we get references to services in some other writings. You know, someone's visiting a church. Famously, there was a nun who went to Jerusalem in the fourth, fifth century and told us a little bit about what was going on there. But even she doesn't mention the things that are, you know, very familiar to her. She only talks about the things that she saw that were new and different. And so it can be very easy to take what we have, what little we have, and kind of build a whole narrative out of it that isn't actually, you know, historically true. It's the same with a lot of stuff when we're dealing with centuries ago in terms of history. So I'll try to be re relatively, um, you know, cautious or conservative in, in what I, I say about the history of, of something like the Great Litany, but, you know, mindful that, you know, we don't really have the full picture here. We can only talk about, you know, the stages where things develop. And, you know, it's from the, the time of printing and, and, and forward that we have a lot more evidence of what liturgical books looked like and that sort of thing. So, uh, and of course, that's relatively late, right? 14th, 15th century. So we'll see. Let's, uh, let's try to answer whatever questions you might have, but sure. mindful that we don't necessarily have all the answers. Um, one of the obvious questions that comes to mind for me at the beginning is, do you happen to know kind of the earliest time where we do see the Litany of Peace sort of in its final form that we have it today? Yeah, well, what we have in terms of today at the beginning of services, um, you know, what we call the, the Great Synapti or the Great Litany is you know, really from the time where you get the final kind of amalgamation of cathedral and monastic practice. So we're talking certainly, you know, after the Latin captivity of Constantinople in the 13th century. So probably in the aftermath, you know, of that, we, we know that something like the cathedral rite proper perdured after that in Thessalonica, we talked before about St. Simeon, 
you know, there, but but certainly after, you know, the time of the Latin captivity in the 13th century is when that cathedral right in in the great cathedral city of uh, of Constantinople, Hagia Sophia, stopped, you know, being in place. So it's in the aftermath of that, we get the monastic supplanting, you know, of that. And the services we have, say, from the 13th, 14th, you know, century indicate clearly the the, the opening that we have today with, with the great litany at that, at that point as well. Now, the it's maybe a little bit earlier than that, you know, for the divine liturgy, where I mean, there's an anal- analogous, you know, great litany, same petitions that we have, you know, today. That's maybe starting to move to the beginning of the service um, uh, in some places, you know, around the 11th century. We have a commentary by Nicholas of Andida from from that time that that kind of refers, you know, to that. But the history of that litany, you know, is rather, you know, lengthy and and, and complex in, in in that the this idea of praying in this way, praying for the, you know, for all of the things that it encompasses, you know, it comes at a slightly later point in the very earliest, you know, services. Um and it's the place where today, you know, certainly in the divine liturgy and you know, to some extent in Vespers as well, we have what we call the fervent litany, um, the ecteni. And uh, basically that time of prayer comes earlier and earlier in the divine liturgy. And then you get the, the development of the, the, the ecteni proper, the fervent litany, which does what it used to, you know, the great Lynn used to do in that place, which is to say, pray for, for all of the worlds. They have a slightly different focus. Now we get a little bit more specific and name people and we get more detailed in our prayer in that later, you know, thing as the great litany comes earlier and earlier, it gets more generalized, more universalized and, and, and so forth. And the other thing it goes hand in hand with is, uh, this kind of gathering for worship because and again, this would be specifically true of, of the divine liturgy, you know, over many, many centuries, but also some of the liturgy of the hours where stuff takes place outdoors in procession. And so it's interesting to reflect on the development of the great litany as we have it as a reflection of the kinds of concerns and considerations you might have in your mind, in your heart, as you wandered through a city. As you moved in procession through the streets and you saw people and things and, and, and so forth. And you kind of gathered all of that up together and you made an entrance. Cause as you know, in both the divine liturgy, we have a, an entrance and it takes place, you know, a little ways through the service, but also there's the entrance that we have in Vespers. We'll get to that, you know, later, but these entrances were really the kind of formal beginnings of the services. So everything that happens up until then potentially was something that took place in procession, getting to the assembly, getting to the house, you know, of, of worship and, and so forth. And so in a way, the, one of the ways of characterizing the great synapti, the great litany is a, is a kind of gathering uh, set of petitions where all of the considerations and concerns of the world, as you wandered through it towards the house of worship, the church were being brought together. So if I'm hearing you correctly, this litany of peace, or otherwise known as the Great Litany, was always something that sort of existed at the beginning of services. Is that right? Um, it would have been, 
you know, in its original place, this kind of prayer for all of these things in the world and everything would have been, you know, after gathering in the church, mm-hmm. right? And so, um, and that is today what we have as the so-called triple litany or fervent litany or, or, or whatever. So in that place, you know, we still do that. And, and that's just before we dismiss catechumens at Divine Liturgy. We used to dismiss catechumens also in Vespers and Matins. Mm-hmm. Um, but th- as that got earlier and earlier, uh, it was replaced by what we have as the the fervent litany in that place. And so the the older place for it is where the the fervent litany is. Oh, now, okay, right. So then you know this kind of slightly more universalized, is slightly more oriented towards the processional aspect or the gathering aspect uh, part of the prayer moves. You know earlier and earlier. You know with the um, with the uh, you know. Going through the streets, you'd have psalms being sung and antiphonally. You'd have stopping, and you'd have you'd have litanies and prayers being being said. You know, we talked before about the fact that during the opening psalm in Vespers, there's these seven prayers of light. Those were clearly done in a kind of processional way, as a kind of collect prayer to you know for the the assembly as it moved and and so forth. Whether that was through the streets or through different parts of, of the church, um, but in any case, there's a lot of movement you know at that at that beginning place and and that great litany and the kind of prayers that were done you know later were brought earlier and by you know kind of the eleventh uh, century it starts to become the the main part of the first part of divine liturgy and you know by the 13th 14th century all of the services the main services will start with that with that prayer even if you're already there in the church so you get this entrance that takes place later you've already gathered and so i mentioned last time around about you know we pray for this holy house and the walls that were you know bounded by um you know the, in in some ways it's like a uh, you know, a planting of that litany, which used to be a kind of more stationally done one, a more processionally articulated mm-hmm. set of petitions and so forth. So we're now within the walls of the house. The the, the entrance could still be, you know, later, which it is, um, but uh, we've already entered as such and we're praying in place for the whole world that of, you know, yesteryear we would have been walking through on the way you know to our assembly so i'm hoping that we can go through some of the individual petitions and and look at some of the concepts or ideas that are there i have a couple of questions regarding that but before we get into that are are you wanting to say any more about kind of the whole litany as a whole uh do we have any evidence of like different versions of this litany that exist well, that's the thing. By the time this exists, clearly where it exists, it has taken this shape pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we probably weren't praying for those who travel by air uh, yes, <laughs> until much yeah. more recently. Mm-hmm. So there's a noticeable thing. I've also is, heard uh, of a uh, priest adding <laughs> space to that now. Well, almost continuously now for many years, there's been at least... A couple of human beings in space. So Sometimes that's bad, Russian, Orth- thing. Russian Orthodox people. Well, exactly, in space too. with icons and all. So, um, so yeah. I mean, why not? Um, I have never yet found definitive evidence for who first added the and air. Uh, for and for Orthodox, you know, being relatively cautious to make any changes to the liturgy, that would have been something. But uh, obviously, 
you know, that would have at least needed the era of air travel to to be something that someone wanted to pray for. So, so yeah, with some minor modifications, you know, this is essentially the the form we have from the printed books in the 14th, 15th, 15th century when, when it really emerges clearly in this place at the beginning of all services like Vespers. The first petition I want to look at to talk about some of the historical context is the third one. So I'll just read the whole petition for refreshing our listeners' memory. For the peace of the whole world, for the welfare of the holy churches of God, and for the union of all, let us pray to the Lord. The particular part I want to look at is the reference to the welfare of the holy churches of God, right? So in Orthodoxy, we often talk about the church, the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And at least in the English translation that the OCA uses, it says, for the welfare of the holy churches of God, that there are multiple churches of God. Could you comment a bit about kind of the historical reasons why there's a plural there as opposed to a singular? Maybe that is a, maybe that's a, a question for another episode, but um, I thought I'd bring it up here. Yeah, I imagine this would make a really good spin-off episode at, at some point. We could talk about the, all the ecclesiology that's Im- implied by this. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we spoke last time about how much the language of the liturgy reflects the language of the Old and the New Testament, you know, even picking up direct vocabulary and themes and so forth. And so, in the first instance, this is really reminiscent of the kind of thing St. Paul, you know, includes in his letters and, and so forth, right? When he writes to the churches, the churches of God and, you know, and, and of Christ in different places. Um, and so, you know, clearly there's a sense in which, yeah, every community that gathers in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is a church and and those are expanding, those are growing, those are extending. The word of God is is moving out in, into the world. The mission of God is being fulfilled, the work of the Holy Spirit through the cooperation of of the apostles and their successors. There are churches, you know, and that is the sense in which, you know, this is is called in, in, into play here. When we talk about one holy Catholic and apostolic church, um, uh, you know, the way in which we understand that ecclesiologically, or, you know, the, with the theology of the church that we have uh, as Orthodox Christians, uh, we understand that the entirety of the church, the bride of Christ, the, the the body of Christ subsides in that local community. So although there are many churches, the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, the unity of the church, the one church exists in its entirety everywhere where the Eucharist is celebrated, where we gather around, you know, the bishop um, and we are, you know, that local church is the entire, you know, church. And so that's where we have this sense of the one church. There is actually no global corporation, you know, like Coca-Cola or whatever, that is the Orthodox church. To speak of the Orthodox church, you know, the way we do in kind of shorthand is a bit misleading um, and actually not theologically, you know, accurate. What we have is the one holy Catholic and apostolic church subsiding, subsisting in the local Eucharistic assembly of every, you know, community that gathers in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in, you know, the 
teaching of the Orthodox faith in the in communion with the Catholic Church. Um, and so that pluriformity and uniformity is, you know, variously reflected in everything. And of course, the next part of that petition is the union of all, right? So, mm -hmm. so there, there, there is unity in the diversity of the number of churches and, and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, now, the, the larger question, obviously, is are we also praying for uh, separated Christians who do not identify themselves as being part of, of what we call by shorthand, the Orthodox Church and, and so forth. And I think that is probably a question for uh, a, a longer uh, discussion, another day, another podcast. A Patreon-only episode, perhaps. A Patreon-only one, yeah. The podcast you're listening to reflects only the public aspect of our overall project. For those interested, we actively post new episodes on our private podcast. This private space gives us the freedom to debate, discuss, and disagree about open and sometimes controversial theological questions. To get access to these episodes and to join our online community, you can become a patron of the show. We can only continue this work through the generous financial support of our listeners. To become a patron, head over to patreon.com slash enacting the kingdom and select which tier of support you wish. Again, that's patreon.com slash enacting the kingdom. And now back to the show. the next petition for this holy house. So you've, you've talked a little bit about the house aspect here. Uh, I've been told many times in my Orthodox upbringing about how the early church would meet in a house and there would be house churches and that this reference for this holy house is a reference to that aspect of worship. And hearing you already talk about it a little bit, I'm like, oh, maybe that's not exactly what it's referencing. Um, but yeah, I'm hoping you can comment a little bit about that phrase for this holy house. Yeah, I mean the the word in Greek "ekos" means you know um, literally house, but we, it has such a wider and and kind of uh, more varied um, you know connotation than than simply its denotation, right? Um, the, I mean the 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 way we we speak about uh, the you know, economy, you know, it, it literally comes from the, the words ecos and nomos, that it's the law of the house, right? And But we don't just mean, when we speak about economy, we don't just mean, you know, my own dwelling. <laughs> you know, we speak, you know, the, it's the house of the, the entire community and society that, that we, we belong to. So house has all these kind of layers, you know, to it. I mean, that the house of God, you know, is in some sense, the entire, you know, church, but of course it subsists, as we were saying, in, in this local, you know, assembly. So it has also the meaning of the walls that we're within, whether that's, you know, a second century Roman villa, because, you know, uh, Priscilla has become a Christian and given over her, her living room to, to be a chapel or church or, or whatever, as often, you know, kind of took place. Or if this is the house that is Agios Sophia, the grand cathedral in Constantinople, you know, or, or whatever, it has, it has a flexible kind of set of meanings and so forth. So, uh, Essentially, it's the the place in which we're gathered, you know, and and this the, where we are, are the place where we are becoming one together. They gathered in one place. It says, you know, in in the Book of Acts, and and that's it's that grounding and physical 
reality, you know, because there's such an easy way to be quote unquote spiritual that gets away from the concrete, from the pragmatic reality of having to deal with real human beings, right? It's very easy to be spiritual when you don't have to deal with, you know, other human beings. Very easy to love when you don't actually have to encounter anybody to love. And so by grounding it in the local assembly, in this local place. And as I say, the, 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 the one really interesting thing here is that, of course, this, this whole kind of litany used to be done processionally going towards a place of gathering. And so, uh, you know, this is, it, walls were put around, you know, this, this litany at a certain point. Uh, but we have no evidence from, you know, say the second century, you know, Roman villa worship, whether they use the word house more than, more than another word, uh, you know, for, for where that place of gathering is. We just know that over time, other words started to be used um, for that, like temple and, and, and so forth. Um, but in any case, it's the, the key thing is the concrete reality of where we are gathered together. One of the things that I remember hearing from a podcast by Father Thomas Hopko on his commentary on the Divine Liturgy, uh, which I highly recommend for, for anybody, is that the, this petition for the civil authorities... So here rendered for the sovereign lady, Queen Elizabeth, for this land and all those in seats of authority, let us pray to the Lord. Um, he would criticize any use of the word our, O-U-R, like our, uh, when it comes to the civil authority. So in his context, being in the United States, it would have been for our president, right? And he criticized that, said, no, the church doesn't have a president. You can say for the president of this land, right? Um, yeah, I'm hoping, yeah, do you have any kind of thoughts on on the distinction between our, using our queen or our president or the queen and the president of this land? Yeah, I, I, I would love to explore that further, you know, when mm -hmm. I meet Father Thomas um, in, you know, in the hereafter. Uh, it's an interesting distinction to make between the and our, you know, I, I wonder whether he also didn't carry a passport because he wouldn't actually have had a country <laughs> that he belonged to. There's the country rather than our country. I, I don't know that, you know, we need to kind of splice things down to, to, to that level. I mean, what is absolutely clear, and I said in our last episode, is that our allegiance and loyalty and fidelity is to one Lord Jesus Christ. He is our Lord. Uh, we, you know, we have no other king um, in an, any kind of ultimate sense. And as long as everything else is relativized, you know, there is a role uh, that even Caesar plays, you know, within that. We are, you know, we are revolutionaries as Christians. We are putting forward over and against the Caesars of this world, the real king, that God has become king in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and that is our fundamental political orientation as Christians. We cannot get, a, get away from that. Nevertheless, there are authorities in this world. That authority ultimately derives from God, whether it's exercised properly or not. Um, and our Lord Jesus says as much to Pilate, you know, in his trial. Um, and so, you know, yeah, absolutely. Our king is Jesus, but we also in Canada have 
a queen. And whether you say the queen or our queen, I'm not sure it matters over much. We are citizens of Canada. Whether we say, you know, the country of Canada or our country of Canada, um, you know, I, I think that is maybe, you know, a, a level of, you know, kind of grammatical specificity that is not necessarily, you know, important unless you were using that to kind of make the point I was just making that about the absolute authority and uh, of Christ and our loyalty to him and putting nothing before God in our lives, because that's, you know, what idolatry you know, is about. And so it would, it would be easy, I suppose. And maybe this is because of Father Thomas having, you know, been in the United States of America where, you know, there is a struggle sometimes to balance, you know, citizenship, you know, in a country, you know, with a kind of, you know, a patriotism that, that is a little bit more unbounded than, um, than you find in, in, in other places. Remember in Canada, we, you know, we, we have peace, order and good government, <laughs> um, as a, the kind of watchwords of our constitution and, you know, we already are kind of maybe more aligned with, you know, what the the balance of this petition is supposed to represent. I have one last question, and this is about the exclamation at the end of the Litany of Peace. And mm -hmm. it's also a bit more of a general question on various exclamations that the presbyter does in liturgical worship. So I'll read the exclamation from the Great Litany. The priest at the end says, for unto you are due all glory, honor, and worship to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, now and ever and unto the ages of ages. Amen. And the biblical quote I picked in last episode was from 1 Timothy 1.17. And I'll just read it again because that's part of the, the question I want to ask. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So in a lot of the biblical exclamations like that, there is not a Trinitarian um, formulation explicitly put in the way it is liturgically. Uh, another example is in the Lord's Prayer as well. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, ever. Amen. But in the Orthodox Church, we say, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, now and ever and to the ages of ages. Amen. So, is there a specific time in which that Trinitarian formula starts to come into those exclamations? Sure. I mean, this is very much a reflection of uh, the debates over both Christology and triadology. So the theology of, of who Christ is and the theology of the Trinity, which took place in the fourth century. So in the, the, the real, you know, kind of cut and thrust of uh, theological debate, which gave rise to two um, ecumenical councils during the, the the fourth century in 325 and 3, uh, 380, 381, um, and out of which we got our you know symbol of faith, uh, the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed. Um, so during that century, there was a lot of debate and discussion over. You know, first of all, the you know, the person of Jesus Christ and his humanity, his divinity. But by the end of the century, the debate had kind of shifted a little bit and was looking at, well, okay, uh, the Lord Jesus is homoousios or one in essence with with the Father. But what about the Holy Spirit? You know, um, and there were those who were kind of arguing against the divinity of the Holy Spirit, or at least the the, the kind of from all eternity divinity of the holy spirit and 
in response to that, the church obviously, you know, with this creed, with with the the theology of the fourth century, the Cappadocian fathers and others, you know, defends quite strongly that God is three in one, equal in essence, and you know, but with with different hypostases or persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so, at this time, liturgically reflecting what's going on theologically and in the debates and so forth against the heretics. An awful lot of uh, efforts are made to to kind of really hammer home this theology of Nicaea and of Constantinople, and one of the ways that that's done is through you know, every exclamation at this point, or you know every um, end of of prayers and so forth, that they get this Trinitarian you know focus. Even I dare say, when it's not all that appropriate, I mean that the, the Our Father, uh, the Lord's Prayer, is all about what by our joining ourselves to the son of god by our baptism so our therefore our sharing in his death and resurrection makes us sons of god brings us into relationship with god the father like the lord jesus has and therefore we can dare to tell the eternal god you know, we can dare to call upon him as father. And so the whole of that prayer is about that relationship. And then you suddenly have this jarring, you know, fourth century imposition of a Trinitarian doxology at the end, you know, which I think um, maybe is a bridge too far. I mean, I get why it was done. And, uh, you know, clearly there were, there were problems, you know, with heretics doubting the divinity of the Holy Spirit. But you know, maybe in some contexts that doesn't always perfectly work like the you know the prayer to our Father. But um, in any case, that's where, you know, you now find that as a hallmark of Orthodox liturgical worship as many times and in many places as you can. There's this reference to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, including, as you rightly point out, that, you know, direct, you know, kind of phrases from the scriptures are, are brought in and then made more obviously Trinitarian than they were uh, in the original context. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Enacting the Kingdom. For bonus episodes and content, or if you'd simply like to see this show continue, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash enacting the kingdom. See you next time.